Supreme Court decisions reverberate around the globe. Today, Wednesday, June 26, this is The World. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman. Gay rights advocates are celebrating today's Supreme Court decisions. One reporter who's researching same-sex marriage laws worldwide says the rulings have an impact outside the U.S. too. I was just looking um, on my Twitter feed uh, as the ruling was handed down, and I saw messages from Colombia, from Paraguay, from Turkey, from Germany, from a couple countries in Africa. People really are paying attention to what the court says. Also today, how other countries do the filibuster. Plus, teaching China's new millionaires how to act, well, rich. We have a class on fur, and afterwards, the students go shopping for fur coats. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman, and this is The World. Cheers outside the Supreme Court today after two historic decisions by the justices in favor of same-sex marriage. The court invalidated parts of the Defense of Marriage Act, which denied married gay couples certain federal benefits. And it declined to rule on California's Proposition 8, paving the way for same-sex marriages to resume in California. Chris Perry was one of the plaintiffs in that case. Today we can go back to California and say to our own children, all four of our boys... Your family is just as good as everybody else's family. We love you as much as anybody else's parents love their kids, and we're going to be equal. Now we will be married, and we will be equal to every other family in California. Today's Supreme Court decisions in Washington are still reverberating around the globe. Lester Fader is a freelance journalist who reports on same-sex marriage laws in other countries. Well, obviously, it's a a huge decision, not just in the United States, but around the world. Uh, We are such an important player in the way that these issues get debated everywhere, uh, in some ways for symbolic reasons, that the Supreme Court making a strong statement like this uh, really does send messages. I I was just looking um, on my Twitter feed uh, as the ruling was handed down, and I saw messages from Colombia, from Paraguay, from Turkey, from Germany, um, from a couple countries in Africa. Uh, People really are paying attention to what the court says. So where does this put the United States now? I mean, it clearly indicates a shift in the U.S. on the issue of gay rights. But put it in perspective globally, since you look at countries around the world, where does this put the U.S. in terms of how it's dealing with same-sex marriage? Yeah, so there there are a few more than a a dozen countries now that have legalized same-sex marriage, depending on how you count that, right? Now the United States is kind of in an ambiguous situation where there's federal recognition, but it's not clear whether these marriages will be recognized in states that don't recognize same-sex marriage for the purposes of state law. And there are other countries around the world where that still remains the case. What is an interesting comparison here is to Mexico, which ruled in 2000. 2010 
on um, some questions that are similar to the ones raised in the DOMA case, whether same-sex marriages performed in Mexico City had to be recognized in other states of Mexico. In December, they handed down a ruling that addressed the question that the Supreme Court would have taken up in uh, the Prop 8 case, whether it is unconstitutional for a state to uh, prohibit same-sex marriages. And the, the Supreme Court of Mexico effectively said, yes, that is unconstitutional under Mexican law. So the United States has has joined some of the um, many of its neighbors now in the Americas in making the case that same-sex marriages are a right, uh, but they haven't gone as far as, as countries like Mexico in really forcing that to be a universal pr- principle across the United States. You've also been reporting on South Africa, which has very strong constitutional protections for gay people, yet what you found out is that the legal protections aren't everything. That's true. It's a very interesting situation in South Africa, which is a real trailblazer um, back in 1993 when they passed their first uh, post-apartheid constitution. It was the first constitution in the world to protect LGBT rights. They then, in 2006, um, thanks to a court ruling, opened up marriage to uh, two same-sex couples. And this was It's still the only country in Africa to do that. But in a lot of ways, it's a lot harder being a gay couple in South Africa than it is in, in the United States, especially if you're poor, if you're black, and if you're a woman, because of the high rates of violence. So lesbians living in the townships still face constant threat of, of murder and rape because they are lesbians. And, and a lot of uh, women that I spoke to when I was in South Africa feel that while this is a, a symbolically nice thing to have, marriage doesn't really mean that much. One very important difference between the United States and South Africa is that in South Africa, there was never a mass movement the way that we saw in the United States to try and change the politics of same-sex marriage and with it attitudes towards homosexuality. So even though the constitution and the laws of South Africa are still a lot more progressive in a lot of ways um, than those in the United States, the political work that was done to get to this point in the U.S. may have a more... um, a more far-reaching change in the lives of gay people in the United States than it has in South Africa. It's interesting. President Obama, who's in Africa this week, he's visiting South Africa. He's also visiting Senegal and Tanzania, uh, two countries that that do not support gay rights really at all. Do you see a gulf opening up around the world between those countries that support gay rights and those that don't? Um, A a gulf opening up probably because there are many countries that have moved very fast to embrace gay rights within a human rights framework. So the change in in places like Europe and the Americas has really transformed the global dynamic. But at the same time, we're seeing – I don't think you can necessarily say it's a reaction against what's happening in Europe and the the Americas, but we are seeing an increasing crackdown and intensification of of anti-gay policies in countries like, not just like Uganda, which is very famous, but also Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Russia, um, and and you see policies remaining in place uh, against gay people throughout many parts of the world. Lester Fader is a writer and Alicia Patterson journalism fellow. He's also a contributor to BuzzFeed. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Manil Suri's recent piece in Granta magazine is called How to Be Gay in Indian. Suri teaches mathematics at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Manil, first off, what's it like for you to see this decision come down today? 
It's amazing. I was sitting by the computer and sort of hitting the return button over and over again, waiting for you know the, the news to come, and uh, there it came. And it just really made me choke up a little. Why is it so moving for you to, to hear this decision today? Well, I've been here for many years, and uh, I was here when the Supreme Court actually upheld anti-sodomy laws way back in the 80s. And then I was here when they struck them down. And now, you know, being in a relationship with my partner for about 23 years, it's great to actually see that recognized. And uh, the fact that we are given the same rights or close to them as anyone else, as any other couple. Does today's decision change the plans of anyone you know, perhaps an international gay couple who will be encouraged by the decision? Well, I think that's part of it, definitely. But I think what's going to happen is that this decision will carry a lot of moral weight with other countries. So, for example, I'm hoping that uh, maybe the Supreme Court of India will think about this uh, before they hand down their decision. More homophobic countries will uh, kind of pause, perhaps, uh, because the U.S. still carries a lot of uh, moral clout in the world. Is India considering same-sex marriage legislation or gay rights legislation? What's happening in India is that anti-sodomy laws that were instituted by the British are being challenged. Although they have been struck down in some sense, that decision by the high court has been appealed to the Supreme Court, and they will hand down their decision by the end of the year. That's what's expected. I know you grew up during the 1960s and 70s in what was Bombay, now Mumbai, and you've written that it was quite incontestably unenlightened. Homosexuality was not mentioned. It didn't exist. Those are your words. What are your most powerful memories of being gay during that time in India? Being so alone, not knowing anyone else who was gay, uh, not having anything in the newspapers, in the media, actually talk about it. You mentioned that you came to the U.S. uh, around the age of 20. That was in 1979. But you've returned to India quite often, and eventually you did come out to your parents. Bring us back to that moment. What was that like? So actually, I came out to my mother way back in about 1981, two years after I came here to the U.S. Uh, That was my first vacation back in India. I think she had already kind of uh, suspected something just from my letters, and she might have gone through some of my diaries, uh, which might have been a plant from my side, you know, just to make her know, I don't know. But it was a very interesting conversation because we started talking about it, and then my father walked in, and she just immediately climbed up and didn't want him to know. And so uh, it was only like a day or two later that we resumed that discussion, And initially, she was absolutely fine with it. She was very supportive and everything. And it was only when I went back to the U.S. that she started, you know, having all these recriminations, uh, blaming people, blaming my father, blaming herself. What was it like to tell your dad? My dad was much later. He had already met my partner of many years. You know, I'd been writing letters that were more and more revealing, I thought, about our relationship. And in 2002, he asked me a question which just left me dumbfounded. He asked me if I wanted to marry this 20-year-old daughter of his friend. And I said, my God, uh, how can you ask me that? First of all, she's, you know, so young. I'm about twice her age. And secondly, don't you know that I've been in a gay relationship for all these years? And he said, no, I don't. I mean, he said no. Then he kept looking at me, and the look on his face suggested that he was still 
waiting to hear about the marriage proposition. Was I interested or not? Which I hadn't you know, technically answered. I mean, he was just as loving and uh, as before. He asked about my partner each time I called him. And I was always looking forward to talking to him at length about it on my next visit to India. But unfortunately, he passed away maybe three months after that. Oh, it's too bad. You mentioned those laws that were passed down by British rule, the anti-sodomy laws. And in 2009, the Delhi High Court struck down that law. What are things like for gays in India today? On the one hand, for people, especially who are in the middle class, who might speak English or in the bigger cities, there are ways of meeting people through the Internet. And uh, there are parties, for example, in Bombay that are organized. There's a gay Bombay group that I know of. So in that sense, there's a community that one can join into. But, you know, the problem is that there's still so much ignorance about it, so much sort of hidden discrimination, hidden prejudice, that people are just scared. And so many people would not be able to take part in those things. And then the other layer in all of this is that India is so divided by social class that gays in different social classes move around in different planes. Generally, the, the sort of usual way that people deal with it is to be more or less closeted, certainly at work and often with family as well, and have a sort of circle of friends that they would interact with more freely. Manil Suri's new novel is The City of Devi. He teaches mathematics at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Thanks so much, Manil. Thank you. We've been following global reaction to the Supreme Court decisions today on Twitter. Here's some of it. Christopher Douglas tweeted from the Philippines, Congrats, U.S. Supreme Court. So glad DOMA has been found unconstitutional. Even as a non-citizen, this is history. And from Guadalajara, Mexico, Charles J. Orth tweeted, I'm very happy that DOMA was struck down. America was built on accepting everybody, and DOMA was designed to prevent that acceptance. Not all tweets reflect a positive reaction, though. One user wrote from Austria, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And another in Greece wrote, So yesterday everyone hated the U.S. Supreme Court, and today everybody loves them. Twitter is one wild roller coaster ride. Check out our Storify with more reactions from around the globe at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills. This is The World. Lawmakers in Austin, Texas, stayed up late last night thanks to State Representative Wendy Davis, who staged a filibuster to prevent a bill restricting abortion from passing before a midnight deadline expired. Texas Republicans tried to push the bill through anyway, but eventually the bill missed that deadline. Filibusters are pretty common here in the U.S., but it's a tradition that often strikes outsiders as strange. We wanted to find out more about filibusters. Where do they come from? And what other countries, if any, use them? So we contacted Jerry Lowenberg, a political science professor at the University of Iowa. I started by asking him about the rules of the filibuster. They are that you have to stick to the subject, that you have to hold the floor, uh, that therefore you can't sit down, and that is physically a very difficult objective to achieve. The principle is that uh, the filibuster preserves the right of unlimited debate, and unlimited debate means that once you hold the floor, you can keep it. 
So what other countries have filibusters? In the United Kingdom, in Great Britain, the filibuster existed until the 1880s, so over 120 years ago. Uh, the British Parliament enacted legislation to make filibusters more or less impossible. And what happened there, and this is quite instructive, is that an Irish minority wanted to defeat the majority effort uh, to um, restrict the independence of Ireland. And eventually the majority said, this is undemocratic. We've got to have a rule that can close debate. Is there any area outside of Europe that has it? Or is it something that sort of came out of uh, British uh, parliamentary tradition? And it we came have out it of and... British parliamentary tradition. And in Europe, by and large, uh, majority rule has triumphed against the right of minorities to speak endlessly. That's true in France, it's true in Italy, it's true in Germany, it's true, as I said a moment ago, in Great Britain. So to put it very simply, the question is, to what extent do you allow a minority to keep a majority from acting? And it used to be that minorities were given very broad uh, opportunities to do that. And with the advent of democracy, let me say, uh, the right of minorities to block the majority was gradually diminished and eventually uh, very, very limited. What's the most famous filibuster you, you, you know of? Well, uh, the filibuster that started all of this occurred in the Senate in 1917, and that was an attempt to filibuster American involvement in the First World War. And since it was a foreign policy issue, that is what led to motions for closing debate. But the most dramatic ones for politically were those that stopped civil rights legislation in the United States. Jerry Lowenberg, political science professor emeritus at the University of Iowa. He's been speaking to us from Iowa City. Thank you so much. Thank you. The war in Syria continues to feed tensions and violence in Lebanon. There have been neighborhood skirmishes in Tripoli, and just a few days ago, fighting broke out in the city of Sidr. Followers of a radical Sunni preacher who claimed to have fought beside Syrian rebels took up arms against Lebanon's army. By the time the battle ended, 18 soldiers were dead, as well as dozens of militants. The preacher has reportedly fled, and many in Sidr seem relieved that he's gone. Reporter Ben Gilbert went to talk with some of them. Abu Allah and his family live across the street from the mosque compound where the radical Sunni cleric Ahmed al-Asir used to preach. On Sunday, as the family was getting ready to eat, an argument broke out on the street below. It was between Asir's men and some Lebanese soldiers. We were cooking, then we went out on the balcony to see what was going on, Abu Allah says. Then they started shooting. We ran into the hallway and stayed here for 24 hours until the fighting stopped. There were huge explosions and the building shook. It was terrifying. Abu Allah and other residents here say the fight started when soldiers at an army checkpoint detained two of Asir's men. Then more Asir men showed up with weapons and opened fire on the soldiers, killing all four. The incident sparked the worst violence Saida has seen since Lebanon's civil war. But Abu Allah shrugs his shoulders about it. He's seen worse. I'm Syrian, he says. We just moved here from Damascus two months ago to escape the shelling. I just don't want to be around any more fighting. For now, at least, Saida is calm again, though not quiet. Hundreds of Lebanese army soldiers and armored personnel carriers swarmed the neighborhood on Tuesday. They lost 18 comrades in the battle with followers of the radical Sunni cleric. 
Asir gained a following among Sunnis in the past two years by calling for a stronger central government and for criticizing the powerful Shiite group Hezbollah. But lately, Asir has gotten more provocative. Last month, his press office put out footage of him allegedly fighting in Syria with Sunni rebels against Bashar al-Assad's forces who are allied with Hezbollah. But Asir seems to have crossed the line by taking on Lebanon's army. It's one of the few institutions in the country that functions, and it's respected by most of Lebanon's disparate political and religious groups. We were scared what he's going to do. Of him? Yes. That's Danny Abdu a 40-year-old Lebanese-Canadian who grew up in Saida. He's back visiting his family for the summer. Abdu says Asir was inciting violence and that it was about time the army got rid of him and his followers. This is the best thing they did. And I hope they got him. Even now, he's not here. I don't know what he's going to do after, to be honest. I'm scared, like, what he's going to do after to this city. Okay? But at least have the job done. Down the street, Haitham Azu cleans up glass from his clothing store. An RPG or mortar round landed right next to his shop, blowing out the windows. He says he used to sympathize with Asir. I like what he said about supporting the Syrian opposition. He was against the weapons of Hezbollah, and I felt he was right about this and about Syria. He was very popular, but he took it too far, he says. Once he used weapons against the state, then he lost the people's support. It was a horrible mistake. A 38-year-old Saida businessman who has to be called Abu Salam also liked what Asir had to say until recently. He owns a store on Saida's usually busy main shopping street, which is deserted and shuttered today. He's relieved that the fight was quick and that the cleric is gone. Thank God it was before Ramadan, the businessman says. The Islamic holy month starts in July. Many other Saida residents seem to share his relief that Asir is gone, but the country is still tense. The Lebanese are divided over the conflict in Syria, Sunnis with the Syrian rebels, Shiites with Assad and the Alawites. And Asir is just one of many radical Sunni preachers to emerge in Lebanon who are channeling anger about what's happening across the border. For The World, I'm Ben Gilbert. The spillover violence from Syria is leaving scars on some of Lebanon's cities. Ben sent us photos from Saida. We've got a slideshow at theworld.org. Later in the show, what Edward Snowden might encounter in Sheremetyevo Airport in Russia, if he's still there. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Carol Hills. Ahead on The World, bad memories of passing through Moscow's Sheremetyevo Airport. We found ourselves in that no-man's land, that transit zone of Sheremetyevo Airport, I don't even remember how long we were there, but it it seemed to drag on uh, interminably. We were certainly there for uh, many hours, strutting into a a full day of uh, basically sitting around our suitcases. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Carol Hills, filling in for Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. China's booming economy with all its jobs doesn't make the country immune from labor disputes. 
They're pretty common, in fact. But those disputes don't usually rise to the level of holding a factory manager hostage. But that's exactly what's happened to an American businessman in China. Chip Starnes is president of a Florida company called Specialty Medical Supplies. It produces alcohol pads and plastic lances for diabetics. The company has a factory in a suburb of Beijing, and the workers there are refusing to let Starnes out until he gives them better severance pay. We reached Chip Starnes inside the factory earlier today. So if I get this right, the employees holding you hostage, they themselves still have jobs, but they worry they may lose them or they simply want to be laid off and get severance packages, but technically they are still employed? Correct. That's exactly right. So I'm in the process of uh, pretty much paying severance packages to people who had jobs. And I try to wait it out one day, too. As, as surreal as it sounds, that's absolutely uh, absolutely true. So did they just kind of hustle you into your office, or did they just say you were in your office and they said you're not going home? How did it actually work that you were, you were yeah, kept there? Yeah, I don't there? know if you've seen pictures of the facility, but we have a, you know, a big gate in the front. And uh, as I was leaving Friday afternoon, about 4.30, I looked out the windows, walking to the, the front gate of the, of the building, and I, I see a couple, one truck, two truck, three truck. Of, you know, four come in and a bunch of the uh, bunch of workers go all the way around at 80 to 100, 120 people coming in and um, demanding severance pays and and basing one of them saying, uh, you know, you're not leaving until uh, we get our money. So what are your conditions kind of, like? Where, do you have a place to sleep or where, are you sort of in one office or can you kind of move around the factory? What's it like in there? Yeah, I can move around uh, in, in, in the first wing of the building and the executive area. I do, they do lock the door at nighttime. They reverse the electric switch um, so they control the in and out. So, but, so do you have um, a bed to sleep in? Um, yeah, you know, I got a, I got a little uh, mattress uh, yesterday. And so other than that, I've been sleeping on a real small sofa. So what so, about food? Who's who's getting you food? Yeah, the first, only the first day was was the, uh, the uh, was was an issue, but. Uh, other than that, the local government got involved, at least supplying food anyway, I should say, um, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. So that hasn't really been an issue. So at this point, are you going to give in to the demands and give them severance even though they're still working for you? Um, yeah, I am. And I guess, in, in, in fact, um, I'm in the process of uh, getting pretty close to uh, reaching a settlement agreement right now uh, with them. I'm going to use it actually um, to use it to go ahead and trim a lot of the extra layers that might have been on around here, and so go ahead and let a lot of people go. And then uh, at the same time, the ones that we are going to keep on uh, back in the field alcohol prep pad division, we're going to sign new agreements with them, but with the understanding that if something is to happen and we don't need them anymore in the future, that their severance has already been paid for. You sound pretty relaxed so, about this whole thing. You know, you have to be. I mean, it's uh, it's hair pulling. I, you know, I probably lost 10 pounds through the process, and I'm going on like the sixth or seventh day of this now. You reach the point after the third or fourth day, it's like, this is real. It's not going away. So what is the actual complaint against you, if you were to say it in a couple sentences? They came to you and they say what? I think it's probably um, it's probably miscommunication. You know, we probably um, didn't do a good job of explaining um, that only one segment of the business was going uh, there's a packing slip that we used for we were supposed to have been packed up and shipped this past weekend. That coupled with some bad information, India, then already earlier in the week with um, you know the severance issues, the ones the jealousy that was going on, kind of snowballed. So I'd just say it's probably bad communication. Uh, one of the things I read is that a lot of this is about back pay. Uh, that people hadn't been paid for a certain amount of time worked, and so that's what they were asking for. 
No, I mean, you know, the 30, the, there was a mistake made um, in, in our accounting department when um, the 30 or 35 workers in the injection division last week, last Wednesday, got let go. But uh, everybody's paid enough to date. That's, that's not an issue at all. So, 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 so you deny the charge that there, there have been unpaid wages? Absolutely, 1,000%. Have you appealed to the Chinese government and have they helped you at all? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, they're involved. They're here all the time. They're actually here and involved in the process here from the Labor Bureau. Um, getting everything uh, put together, so, but they, you know, it's considered it's considered a civil event, so um, they just don't get involved in that. It's a, it's a dispute between the factory and its monetary, regardless of you know it's really this is sort of really made up because I'm paying severances for people who have jobs. So no plans to pull out of China. You're still going to hang in. You know, I'm going to use this, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to hang in here. I'm going to slim it down and keep moving forward. Yeah, I've been here ten years. Really, the, what I can consider a major event that's ever happened, and most of it just based on bad communication. Yeah, you seem pretty relaxed. Chip Starnes, president of Specialty Medical Supplies. It's a Florida-based company, and we're speaking to him from his office in the factory in a suburb of Beijing, where he is being held hostage by employees uh, demanding severance packages. Thank you very much, Chip Starnes. Thank you. China's government is always worried about potential unrest. The country's got one of the world's largest wealth gaps, and it's creating resentment. President Xi Jinping is concerned enough about it that he's ordered Communist Party elites to cut down on conspicuous consumption. And China's nouveau riche are learning that in the wide world beyond China, having money without manners doesn't necessarily buy you respect. Here's the world's Mary Kay Magstad. Ho Li Mi's husband made his money in oil, kind of like the Clampets in the Beverly Hillbillies. Ho and her husband are part of China's burgeoning nouveau riche. But, like the Clampets, she says she could use a little help. What I want to learn most is how to talk to people. I want to sound like I'm well-educated, I'm knowledgeable. As Ho talks, she watches her young son race around a parking lot filled with expensive cars. Just beyond are flashy designer shops. Ho is wearing a few of the labels, but still seems ill at ease with her new station in life. Sarah Jane Ho, no relation, might have the solution. I have two courses, a debutante course for unmarried women, um, and then a hostessing course for older married women. They pay the equivalent of $16,000 for a 12-day course at the Institute Sarita. The hostesses learn how to set a table, when to use what cutlery, how to make small talk, and some extras. We have a class on fur, and afterwards the students go shopping for fur coats. Sarah Jane Ho is supremely poised, polished, and self-confident. She grew up in Hong Kong, attended a Swiss finishing school, and then Harvard Business School. Now, just in her late 20s, she's a few months into this new endeavor. And she says there's already a waiting list. So what my clients are looking for is a guide to how to behave. China is a leading economical power, but only when the Chinese go abroad and they interact with international elite do they realize that to truly be a leader, you need to know how to behave because some degree of civility is essential for any kind of shared public life. Indeed. But in the same parking lot where I met the oil exec's wife, I chatted with a migrant worker named Gao Shihai. He sells balloons here, and he sees the nouveau riche every day. 
they look down upon poor people. The way they talk, the way they act, depends on、uh, how much money other people have. As we're talking, several well-heeled owners of these luxury cars breeze past us and past a blind man who plays the arhu, a traditional Chinese violin, for spare change. Of course, not all of China's elites are disdainful of the poor, but there's a clear power divide between ordinary people and China's nouveau riche, who are often connected to the Communist Party. China's leaders recognize the potential cost of growing social tension. So, after too many instances of luxury cars with official plates hitting people or otherwise behaving badly, the government has banned military license plates on Porsches and certain other luxury cars. It's a start. Another passerby I meet in this neighborhood has her own suggestion for what China's nouveau riche could learn. Wang Xin is an elegant young woman who, though Chinese, has spent most of her life in Paris. First, studying the marketing of luxury. And now doing film production. I think the most important for China is learn what is really important in life, because、uh, in China the only standard to to measure a people is successful or not is only money. The most important for me is what you like in your life, and、uh, if you're happy with your life, ask yourself the question: What is happiness? For some people, happiness might be as simple as buying your kid a balloon on a warm summer's day. But the balloon seller Gao says the owners of the luxury cars here don't buy many of his balloons. He sells enough to others to make a living. He's from a poor rural area in central China, and every month he sends money home for his three kids. I wish them good with their studies so that they can have a better future than me. So if they get rich, how would you like them to act? He says, "I'd like them to help other people." To help those who are less well off, if consideration for others is the heart of good etiquette, Gao seems to have already learned it. And if China is to have the social harmony the government says it so values, China's nouveau riche would do well to do the same. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. The place we're looking for in today's geo quiz is old, but it has a new claim to fame. This coastal region in southern Africa has just been added to the list of world heritage sites. That means it's considered a natural wonder of the world and one worth protecting. This region is part of a vast desert that looks out on the Atlantic Ocean, and it's been there for roughly 75 million years, which makes it the oldest desert in the world. The part we want you to name is also one of the most sought-after tourism destinations in southern. Africa. That may be because some areas of the remote, uninhabited landscape look like the surface of the moon, and because of the dazzling views of the night sky there. So, can you name this brand new world heritage site in southern Africa? You have just a few seconds. Okay, let's turn to Theo Wassenauer for the answer. He's an ecologist at Gobabeb, an environmental research organization that studies this desert in southern Africa. Theo, can you put this new World Heritage Site on the map for us? Yes, indeed, I'll do that. It's called the Namib Sand Sea, and it's more or less in the center of the Namib Desert, which is on the west coast of Africa, the southwest coast of Africa. And what makes it different from other deserts? It's not entirely different from other deserts. It's a sand sea, which is a common phenomenon in many deserts. It's also called an erg, which is an、uh, Arab word、uh, for an area of、uh, sand dunes. The Namib sand sea is pristine, 
has been very little impacted by humans. And it occurs in an area that uh, where there's a unique confluence of, of conditions that, that kind of create uh, unique habitats for many animals and plants. So what kind of animals and plants are there? It's a feature of the Namab Sand Sea that the sand itself, the, the sand grains, allow a lot of oxygen to diffuse into quite deep into the, the sand layers. And uh, this has led to a number of species that have specialized in uh, swimming through the sand. They literally swim. Uh, they do this, of course, to escape the, lower, the harsh conditions outside. Below the surface, its conditions are actually quite amenable, and they have enough oxygen to breathe there. What kind of animals are they? Well, the largest number of species, of course, would be the, the insects, the, the so-called darkling beetles. There's a, uh, there are a lot of them that have specialized in living in the sand. There's also a, a mammal, uh, the number of golden mole. Uh, we scientists call it a poikilothermic, uh, which means that it uh, it's like a reptile. It adapts its body temperature to the ambient temperature. Uh, and this golden mole lives 99% of its life under the under the sand. Any big mammals roaming around? Well, none of them go under. Uh, none of them swim in the sand, but there are a couple of large mammals on, in the Namib Sand Sea. We get the oryx, sort of mid-range antelope. Uh, there are a lot of springbok. We occasionally, on the fringes of the sand sea, will get the so-called uh, Hartmann's mountain zebra, which is a, an endemic, meaning it only occurs in in the Namib. And yeah, there are a couple of others, of course, that occasionally also enter the sand sea. But the oryx and the springbok are probably the most typical. So your your station where you are, you said it's sort of precisely in the middle of this giant desert. If you walk out of your building, what do you see? I have very carefully selected my office in, in our research center. My office overlooks the Kuiseb River, which is a dry river, or ephemeral river. It floods more or less once a year. And just beyond that, the Namib Sand Sea starts. So I have an incredible view, you know, the blue sky and the orange gold of the Sand Sea and the green of the, the trees that occur in the river. I know the Namib Sand Sea, it's a big tourist attraction in southern Africa. What are people there going to see? Is it the stuff on the land or is it the night sky I hear about so much? The scenic splendor would definitely be one of the attractions. I really can't, it's impossible to describe this over radio, but it really is a beautiful place. The Namab Sand Sea, of course, in itself doesn't contain any uh, human beings that live there. Uh, the only populations live on the edge of the Namab Sand Sea. If you're looking for solitude and loneliness, this is the place to come. <laughs> and of course, there are, as you say, those wonderful night skies, um, especially when we have the South wind conditions, southerlies, which bring in very cold, clear air from the south, and then you can literally see for miles. I hope to make it to the Namib Sand Sea sometime. It sounds beautiful. Oh, please come and visit. I'll show you my view out of my office. All right. Theo Wassenauer is an ecologist who works at the edge of the Namib Sand Sea, the answer to our geo-quiz today. Thank you so much, Theo. Okay, that was my pleasure. Thank you. This is PRI.
I'm Carol Hills. This is The World. Edward Snowden is still at large. The man who leaked details of the NSA's secret surveillance programs is supposedly still at Moscow's Shermetyevo airport. That's what the authorities in Russia say. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov today insisted that Snowden has not violated Russian law. He has not crossed the border. He is in the transit zone of the airport and can fly anywhere that he wants, Lavrov said, and added, the sooner this happens, the better. Well, travelers who've used Moscow's Shermetyevo Airport might agree. Fiona Hill is one of them. Hill is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, from where she joins us now. Fiona, I know you've been through Shermetyevo Airport many times, and I hear your first experience was especially memorable. Yes, unfortunately, my uh, first experience of Shermetyevo Airport was documented. It was also an international incident, like uh, Edward Snowden finds himself in the center of I was a British student at the time, an undergraduate, doing my study abroad year. And I arrived with a a group, a contingent of British students on a flight in September 1987, when this was still the Soviet Union. And while we were in the air flying from the UK, uh, the Soviet Union instituted a law that all foreigners coming on multiple entry visas for an extended period of time should be uh, tested for HIV before they were allowed to enter into the country. Had Did to they sign stick all kinds of declarations. Uh, the um, embassy sent uh, a team of doctors and nurses to do that, and I was the seventh person because of the alphabet uh, to <laughs> be tested <laughs> under the new Soviet regulations uh, for HIV. Fortunately, there were no um, false positives, but we kind of eventually emerged to the glare of uh, TV crews and cameras and everybody trying to kind of figure out what had happened. That is quite a welcome. I understand your husband then had some trouble too a few years later. Yes, fast forward 10 years. My husband, who, um, let's just say, has not been a big fan of returning to Moscow and Sheremetyevo Airport ever since, and every time I suggest this as a vacation destination, uh, runs uh, out the door, never to be seen again. Um, I'd persuaded him to come on, I guess most listeners are thinking, what? Why did he agree in the first place? (laughs) To come on a vacation (laughs) with me to Central Asia to visit some friends in Kazakhstan, and we were transiting through Moscow. And my husband uh, discovered as he was going through the transit visa process that one of the dates on his visa had been inverted. So, um, one of the dates? Gone, uh, the date. Or, or uh, the date of the visa, I see. The date of the visa. So the visa looked like it had expired before it had been issued. It was just a simple mistake and no one had spotted it when we were getting on the plane or in the visa place because it was, it was in Russian and his Russian wasn't very good and he hadn't been able to spot this. And I'd already passed through ahead of him They wouldn't let me back uh, to try to figure out what was going on. So I was on one side of the membrane and he was on the other in the no man's zone transit. And there he remained for two days while I tried to uh, extricate him. Uh, So there's not a lot of things to do back there, not a lot of things to look at. It's not somewhere I would want to be stranded for days on end. And my husband will attest to that. So any advice for Edward Snowden while he's there? I would say get out of there as quickly as possible. This isn't going to turn into that wonderful Hollywood movie terminal where, you know, the man finds romance and, uh, you know, basically um, all kinds of very kind people in various concessionary stands and we get a whole movie out of it. I think, you know, Mr. Lavrov's advice that he can move on as quickly as possible is probably the, uh, the best taken. Fiona Hill at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much. Thank you. A few of my colleagues here at The World have spent time inside Moscow's Sheremetyevo Airport, and they have stories to tell. If you've traveled through Sheremetyevo, we'd love to hear your tales. Just go to theworld.org and look for the orange record button.
Finally today, another Russia-related story. This one is about a Russian-themed float at this weekend's Gay Pride Parade in New York City. Actually make that the parade's first-ever float dedicated to the former Soviet Union. The man behind the project is Pasha Zalutsky. He's 31 and a native of the former Soviet Republic of Belarus. Pasha, how are you feeling today? Big decisions at the Supreme Court. What do you think? Uh, I'm super excited. It made my day. I call all my friends. We're so happy. Hopefully, I'll go to Stonewall today and celebrate with the crowd. It's really a big day. Today, they announced this. On uh, on uh, Friday, I get my citizenship. On Saturday, we have our red party. On Sunday, we have our first Russian float. I think it's the best week I've ever had in my life. Wow. That's a big week. It's a really yeah. interesting contrast uh, with that bill just passed in Russia's upper house of parliament a few weeks ago. You know, over there, they've just passed a law that bans the distribution of what it calls gay propaganda to minors. What's that all about? Uh, First of all, I want to comment on your introduction, men behind the project. I'm not the man behind the project. Uh, We have the whole Russian community behind the project. And as as, uh, as far as the law on gay propaganda is concerned, I hate it. It's an awful law, and I think if I think if you're a human being supporting GLBT rights, no matter where you are in Russia or in the United States, you can't just help feel but disgusted with the law. Tell us about the float that you're helping to design that's going to be in Sunday's parade. The float uh, is uh, Russian-themed. We're having banners on the float that read messages of love. One of our messages is, from Russia with love, leave hate behind. Uh, the other message that we have is, uh, we did a paraphrase of the famous Soviet Soviet phrase, Lenin lived, Lenin lives, Lenin will live. So we wrote, Russian gays were, Russian gays are, Russian gays will be. Uh, so it, it really kind of communicates to you that uh, we, we, are, we, we are celebrating on, on, on a level which is very touching, very symbolic, and very important. And when you say we, I know you spend a lot of time kind of trying to keep in touch with other people from the former East Bloc who are also in, in the U.S. or in New York City. How is being gay different in, in New York City compared to Minsk? You're from Minsk in uh, the former Soviet Republic of Belarus. Oh, you know, it's it's a tremendous difference. When I'm in Belarus, I immediately feel like something physical takes over me. I, I start feeling tension in my body when I'm in public. You just can't help feeling that, you know. Maybe somebody doesn't, you know, uh, but it happens to me. When I'm in New York, in New York City, uh, that all kind of floats away. And I just, um, I just feel that I have the permission to walk the way I walk, to talk the way I talk. I'm pretty flamboyant, you know. When I walk into the room, you immediately know I'm gay. Uh, so, and I feel like I have permission for all of that here. So is there a specific message you, you want to say with your float? You know, a message, it, it all sounds so political, you know. We, first of all, want to create an opportunity for those of us who are here and for those who are wherever else they might be in the world, including Russia, that opportunity to um, come onto a float and unashamedly, openly celebrate your Russianness and your gayness, you know. Uh, so uh, I guess that's the message we want to send out, that there is this great opportunity there. Pasha, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carol. And we go out with Born to be Free by Sonique, one of the songs that will be playing on that Russian-themed float on Sunday in New York's Gay Pride Parade. From the Nanny and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Carol Hills. Thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International